Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to the UK to speak with Alec Bettina, a freelance journalist and researcher of non-traditional security actors with a focus on Russian private military contractors and paramilitary groups. He is an all-source analyst for Grey Dynamics and a conflict analyst for Militant Wire. We will assess claims by Prigozhin that his Wagner mercenaries have captured Bakhmut and look into reports that Ukrainian sabotage groups have blown up military installations inside Russian territory bordering on Ukraine, with sources citing Ukrainian military intelligence saying two armed Russian opposition groups, the Liberty of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps, RVC, both consisting of Russian citizens, were responsible for carrying out the attack. We will explore how much this is part of a broader strategy to divert Russian resources and undermine morale leading up to an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. Then we'll assess the extent to which NATO countries can provide more of the military and economic assistance going to Ukraine since, according to the World Bank, the European Union had a GDP more than nine times larger than that of Russia in 2021, and the war in Ukraine has widened the gap still further. Even the much maligned military spending of EU members is already almost four times greater than Russia's, and the EU has roughly three times the population of Russia. Joining us is Joshua Schifferinson, a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. He is the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts, and we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Does America Need Europe? Then finally we'll explore the belief among free market radicals that democracy and freedom are incompatible with capitalism and that countries like Singapore and Dubai are the models to follow with free trade zones as capitalist nirvanas that will unleash the market from the tyranny of government and bureaucracy. Joining us is Quinn Slobodian, a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. A frequent contributor to The Guardian, foreign policy, dissent, the nation, and the new statesman, he is the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany and Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And we will discuss his latest book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from the UK is Alec Bettina, a freelance journalist and researcher of non-traditional security actors with a focus on Russian private military contractors and paramilitary groups. He is an all-source analyst for Grey Dynamics and a conflict analyst for Militant Wire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alec Bettina. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you think is happening with Prigozhin now in Bakhmut? Has he fallen into a trap? Did the Ukrainians uh, withdraw, invite him in, and are they going to encircle him? What do you think is happening? So I suspect that Prigozhin wanted to take the credit for taking Bakhmut and is prematurely announcing it now, because I still think there are small areas of Bakhmut that are still under Ukrainian control. And what I believe Prigozhin wants to do is effectively take credit for this. And the Kremlin seems to have given him that in a way, based on recent statements I've seen from Russian state TV and statements by Putin himself. Um, but at the same time, Prigozhin also wants to take his troops out. They have already been beaten up quite badly in Bakhmut. And he wants to leave the Russian Ministry of Defense uh, to be responsible for defending the area. Um, this way... I suspect he's able to claim that if there is an operation that goes badly for the Russians there, um, he can sort of point the finger at the Russian Ministry of Defense and uh, claim that they were responsible for giving Ukraine successes on the battlefield in that area. Uh, in terms of what the Ukrainians are doing, uh, it seems like they are putting pressure on the flanks and they're trying to do it incrementally and it is hard to know whether they actually plan to do anything more with Bakhmut, whether they do really plan on encircling it, or whether they are simply uh, doing shaping operations to distract Russian forces and to free up, uh, to kind of focus the Russians on Bakhmut whilst operations are going to go on in other areas. But did they essentially withdraw to allow Prigozhin's troops to enter the city? Because, I mean, they've been fighting pretty hard for it, and then all of a sudden he declares victory. Something obviously happened. So I, I think it is worth stating that um, the Ukrainians are trying to balance a treating Wagner and also not losing too many men in the process. Uh, the way that the Russians are advancing in that area is by flattening effectively anything they can see as like terrain that Ukrainians could take cover in, right? Um, so it's not implausible to suggest that the Ukrainians really could have pulled back because they simply were going to lose too many men trying to hold existing territory. Uh, that said, it is very clear that the Ukrainians are engaging in control withdrawals and have done before and will continue to do so. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't necessarily think this, this decision was solely done because the Ukrainians wanted it to happen, I think they were also forced by tactical uh, situations on the ground to do it. So, Alec, what's your opinion of the relationship between Prigozhin and Putin? It's my understanding, because a lot of people have been wondering why Putin allows him and allows the military bloggers and allows state TV to give him so much airtime. And I'm sure you've seen his tirade against 
Defense Minister Shoigu and Gerasimov, the head of the military, absolutely, you know, ripping them apart. And there's no question that there's been a, a war between Prigozhin's mercenaries and the regular Russian military. And you wonder why the Ministry of Defense puts up with this guy. But is it because Putin has him specifically as his attack dog that he's got somebody that can challenge the military and therefore, in an implicit kind of way, prevent a military coup against Putin? So um, the use of the word attack dog is very useful, but only if it's used in a specific context, in my opinion, which is that attack dogs are not always predictable. And I'm fairly confident that Prigozhin does act as a counterbalance to the Russian Ministry of Defense and effectively helps create an environment of competition between the Russian Ministry of Defense and Wagner, where to fight for resources, they have to compete, Use you know, for the purposes of their self-interest to try and accrue resources from the Russian state that is going to be heavily dependent on uh, Putin's patronage. So they're fighting for his approval. And this is why you have the Ministry of Defense restricting ammunition supplies to Wagner to some degree, and why you have Prigozhin directly admonishing Gerasimov, Shoigo, and all these individuals. I will say that I'm not of the belief that Putin wants these competing factions because he's somehow worried about uh, these either Wagner or the MOD taking over if they have a monopoly on power. Uh, I, I think that Putin is fairly secure in that sense from any sort of power play from the Ministry of Defense and uh, Wagner. What I do believe, though, is that if you look at the Russian Putin system broadly, uh, there is definitely a benefit that Putin sees in having competing factions acting in their self-interest to try and win over the Russian state. And in that way, rather than relying on individuals to act you know, in the interests of the state, he is instead motivating them through competition and uh, their self-interest to try and perform um, as best as they can for the Kremlin. So in terms of this much-anticipated counteroffensive by Ukraine, we don't know when it's going to happen, obviously, but what's your opinion in terms of whether there's a possibility of a breakthrough and a collapse of the Russian army? I mean, wishful thinking aside, you know, the Ukrainians are starting to get some trained-up brigades. They just got a brigade from Sweden with Leopard tanks and Swedish um, personnel carriers, about 8,000 trained men. And I think across the front, they're getting better equipment and better training. So what's your opinion about what might transpire here? So that's obviously the million-dollar question that everyone is trying to answer. Um, I would say that it's worth recognizing two things, that the Ukrainians certainly managed to avoid having a lot of these mechanized brigades that were being trained up by NATO. They've avoided using them in unblocking operations in eastern Ukraine. At the same time, some of the assault, assault brigades, that are, you know, one of their task remits is to take out trenches. They have some, suffered some losses during this campaign to trip Russia in eastern Ukraine. Um, so the concern that I've seen posed by various military analysts, and I share it myself a little bit, is that some of Ukraine's most assault-capable infantry have uh, experienced some damage 
and some reserves have been eaten up on that front. That said, um, the Ukrainians are clearly taking their time. They were clearly conserving ammunition, and they've had a lot of inputs from Western war planners. Uh, they themselves have been making very careful tactical considerations as to how to take on Russian fortifications. And it doesn't seem to me that what is happening right now is the start of some sort of rushed campaign motivated by political concerns. I think there's definitely due diligence and time taken by the Ukrainians to prepare for as successful of a counteroffensive as possible. They seem to be doing the right things in terms of shaping operations. There's a clear uptick in reconnaissance missions and probing operations. And if you look at what's happening in Belgorod today, uh, I, I think rather than seeing it as an isolated, interesting uh, activity going on, it should be seen as part of a broader shaping operation uh, that the Ukrainians have been really in, doing in full swing since uh, the start of at least last month. So let's talk about what just happened in Belgorod, which borders on Russia, inside Russia, there have been Ukrainian sabotage groups and the uh, Ukrainian military intelligence people, Badanov's people, are saying that this is the work of these sabotage operations have been the work of two armed Russian opposition groups, the Liberty of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps. But it seems that Budanov has been quite active in getting people inside to blow up refineries and arms depots and even aircraft on airfields. What do you make of what just happened? And you're saying this is tied in with a broader offensive campaign? Yes. So there's a few uses. Uh, one of them is the diverting Russian resources away from the front line to try and deal with problems, uh, you know, on the Russian border. Um I would also say there is a lot of political utility, and I believe this kind of plays into Ukraine's broader political calculations of their information warfare strategies, which is that doing these incursions, you know, or abetting groups in doing these incursions, they are a putting pressure on Putin from the nationalist flanks of his supporters who feel this is a, you know, a very embarrassing incident. It's hard to spin this any positive way. Um, it also has given get, gotten him a lot of flack from the very patriotic, quite nationalistic pro-war uh, military blogger community uh, that has already been causing him some headache in terms of the domestic realm. And interestingly as well, is it shows any opposition in Russia that there are groups that could potentially engage in indirect opposition to Putin in the most violent sense. And I think that also has its own sort of uh, threat to Russian stability that certainly is going to concern the Russian state. Additionally, it's just, again, a, a case of power of, of prestige disappearing, right? Uh, if these groups can act in so, with such impunity and take so long to suppress, this is just something that is looks very bad for the Kremlin. Uh, it sends a signal to partners of Russia that Russia maybe is not as able to handle its internal security affairs as it should be, and that carries its own risks for Russia. Uh, I, would, I would say that while it's likely the Ukrainians on some level have a better this, uh, the, the, the Free Legion um, 
the Free Legion unit, after all, is a unit under the inter International uh, Territorial Defense Force of Ukraine. Um, groups like the Russian Volunteer Corps, for example, they are authentically Russian individuals, arguably of a small fringe minority, but they're very real. And uh, from people I've spoken to who, you know, are in the know and research these sort of things, they have heard of Russian Volunteer Corps personnel fighting on Ukraine's side quite effectively. Um, so it's possible that Ukraine might not be masterminding a single-handedly, but they're certainly abetting mm -hmm. it or allowing it to happen on some level. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Alec, it's my understanding that it was Badanov's people working with Russian partisans, for the want of a better description, that were behind the recent drone attack on the Kremlin, and that the drones were, were launched from just outside of Moscow, and that one of them hit a flagpole, and it might have actually hit Putin's residence there, not that he was in it, but still, I can't help feeling yeah. that that really rattled Putin's cage. So... Um I would sense if you looked at that campaign in isolation, you might ask what the purpose of it is. But as a broader campaign, it's clear it's about diverting Russians uh, security resources and also anti-air system and air defense system resources into Moscow. And um, I would say that it's worth recognizing some partisans don't immediately appear to have any relationship with the Ukrainian intelligence services. For example, there is a group called uh, BOAC, which is an anarcho-communist organization, and they've been doing sabotage attacks that, that doesn't seem to be an implicit connection to uh, the Ukrainian intelligence services. That said, um, it's possible that all these other groups are definitely being enabled, or even Russian uh, dissidents are being given instructions on how to create a rather primitive weaponry like the drone that was used on uh, the Kremlin flagpole. So I'm just trying to underscore the importance of not overestimating or underestimating Ukrainian involvement in any of these operations. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, Alec. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Alec Bettina, who's in the UK, where he's a freelance journalist and researcher of non-traditional security actors with a focus on Russia's private military contractors and paramilitary groups. And he is an all-source analyst with Grey Dynamics and a conflict analyst for Militant Wire. We're going to take a brief station break and back, assessing the extent to which NATO countries can provide more of the military and economic assistance going to Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joshua Schifferson, who's a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. He's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, does America need Europe? Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Schifferson. 
thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Joshua. And your article begins with mentioning uh, French President Emmanuel Macron's recent very, very successful trip to China, where the Chinese put on all kinds of uh, pomp and ceremony for him. But on the way back from Beijing, he really upset the United States by saying that the worst thing for Europe would be just when we have finally managed to clarify our strategic position, we end up pulled into a world of crises that are not our own. So let's, in effect, turn your article on its head and ask the question, does China need Europe? Because it seems at the moment China's torn between supporting uh, Russia in its war against Ukraine or not doing so, at the expense of losing its European markets? Well, th- thank you for the question. I should add that the article isn't mine alone. It's also with Stephen Wertheim and Emma Ashford. But to, to answer the question directly, does China need Europe? I, I, I think you're right that China certainly uh, benefits from having a large European market for China's industrial wares, for its goods and services. Likewise, China, Europe is still a major source of China, of capital for China's still hungry domestic market. So China still certainly does need uh, Europe. And as you're alluding to, China also has a relationship with Russia, which is at odds with most of uh, the rest of Europe. And so one of the things China needs, and I think one of the reasons Macron's comments also resonated, is that China is trying to dampen down the conflict in Ukraine, just as France and some of the other Western European countries have been uh, less ebullient than the United States and some of the Eastern European countries for perpetuating the conflict or sustaining the conflict in Ukraine. They would much rather see a settlement of some kind. So I think for economic reasons as well as diplomatic reasons, China needs Europe uh, as much as anything else. So in terms of... Europe being lagging in, to, in helping Ukraine and the, Europe, the Germans in particular, they've been slow in putting where, their money where their mouth is. But to some extent, it seems that, that situation is reversed. What do you make of the fact that the, it's the United States that keeps setting these red lines for themselves that they can't cross vis-a-vis supplying arms to Ukraine, and then months later, they decide to cross those lines, like supplying tanks and now training Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s. So the the arms eventually arrive, but months later. Where do you see that now at the moment? Who's driving the train? Is it the Europeans that want to send more? Because I understand the Swedes just sent an entire armed brigade, trained Ukrainians with Leopard tanks and Swedish armored personnel vehicles. So it seems that Europe is ponying up more where would you at the moment see the uh, ratio between the U.S. and Europe supporting Ukraine? Well, it, it, it's the question of the day in some ways. But I guess I would step back for a second and just note that ju- that there are not only divisions within the alliance, within NATO itself, between, as you alluded to, uh, the Eastern Europeans, as well as some of the newer members of NATO and NATO aspirants, such as Sweden, uh, between those countries and the Western European countries, although even there, France and Germany are more reluctant than Britain to provide aid to Ukraine. And of course, between the European members of different kinds of the alliance and uh, of different stripes and the United States. That's one major division. The other major division is, with, is within these different countries. And we can look at the United States here, where there are clearly differences within the Biden administration between those who want to see Ukraine press on to victory at all costs uh, over Russia, between those who are fearful of taking U.S. attention and focusing too much upon the war in Ukraine, 
uh, and those who are simply okay with a negotiated settlement of some kind. So they're, they're, they're both domestic and international divisions is the overarching point here. And I think right now, because uh, Russia has proven unable to, for a variety of reasons in achieving its wartime objectives, and because there are uh, moral and domestic political reasons for different actors and in, in, uh, even the reluctant members of NATO to escalate in Ukraine, because there are uh, people who are in, because those who are reluctant to escalate are having a harder time making their point as the Ukrainian government has held on, as the Ukrainian government has made a moral case uh, for resisting Russia, and as the Russia contest has become wrapped up in this broader narrative about the durability of the post-Cold War order and U.S.-Chinese relations, the people who are in favor of escalating or, or providing further aid to Ukraine are really in the driver's seat. I think the momentum in NATO has moved towards Eastern Europe, where maybe Eastern European members of NATO are able to drive the field or define the agenda. And I think at home in the United States or in many of the other more reluctant members of NATO, those advocating for a more hawkish position are right now um, able to push the envelope a little bit more than they could in times past, which explains why we've seen red lines put in place and then crossed uh, a few months later, as you said. So Turkey, of course, which is a NATO member, I find it so extraordinary, Joshua, that the Turkish authoritarian leader, who just um, mm. looks as if he'll be uh, re-elected to another term on Sunday, he's running mm -hmm. an anti-American campaign, and it works. It seems that much of the reluctance of the global south to support the West, NATO, and the United States, and the G7's position vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Ukraine seems to be sort of based in, in a kind of anti-Americanism, which Erdogan is running essentially against. He's even suggesting that Biden is planning on a coup and he's cozying up to Putin. So that's a pretty strange situation, isn't it? It is on one level. I, I think we might be able, to, uh, again, this is not my area of expertise, but I think we can step back and offer two basic hypotheses as to what might be going on here. The first is that uh, although the United States is not the unipole any longer, and it's no longer as powerful as it was in the heyday of the post-Cold War era, it is still the largest player on the international scene. And when you're the largest player, Oftentimes, uh, local actors, local governments are able to point to you, blame many ills upon you, and make political capital. You know, powerful states tend to have bullseyes on their back, and this isn't just international, has also has domestic ramifications. The second thing which might be going on, though, and, and here I'm going to step out on the ice a little bit, but I think it is worth considering, is that in many parts of the world, the notion that the United States uh, foreign policy is substantially different than many other big uh scary actors like Russia, like China, may not resonate in quite the same way, given the uh, violence the United States has engaged in across the world, given the fact that the United States often coerces friend and foe alike. And so although the, I would argue the United States is a different kind of actor, although the United States is, in my view, uh, engaged in a different kind of international behavior, it may not look the same to all countries, all citizens around the world. And as a result, political despots like Erdogan and Turkey are able to, again, exploit the United States' past behavior to gin up popular support for themselves, you know, pushing back against the imperialists, so to speak. So, Joshua Schiffenson, let's then do a reality check, which is very much a part of your article at Foreign Affairs with Emma Ashford and Stephen Wertheim, Does America Need Europe? The European states have now, I'm reading from the article, the European states of NATO and the EU possess 
vastly greater latent military power than Russia can muster. According to the World Bank, the European Union has a GDP more than nine times larger than that of Russia in 2021, and the war in Ukraine has widened that gap still further. Even the much maligned military spending of EU members is already almost four times greater than Russia's, and the EU has roughly three times the population of Russia. So that's a pretty stark reality check, isn't it? Yes, and, and I would actually go further and point out to some qualitative differences as well. I don't think anyone would argue that the European Union is more technologically advanced as a whole uh, than Russia. I don't think anyone would quibble that they have a healthier and more educated workforce, therefore a healthier and more educated uh, population that they could put or put towards military purposes. They have an advanced uh, space capability in various ways. They have advanced computers in various ways, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, and habits of cooperation born of many years in NATO and, of course, the European Union. So this is a starkly favorable situation for Europe to begin making the hard steps that, are, that would be needed to really take uh, onus for much of European security and change the relationship between Europe and the United States. So what would you then, can you outline, Joshua, in terms of what you, the article says, that Washington needs to de develop realistic policy options commensurate with the threat posed to U.S. interests? Just walk us through some of the, what you're proposing there. Sure. So at the end of the day, the, Euro the United States has had one overriding and pervasive interest in Europe since around the turn of the 20th century, certainly the second half of the 20th century called preventing the emergence of a European hegemon. Now, for much of the post-Cold War era, but excuse me, the Cold War era, this was the Soviet Union. After the Cold War, there was really no hegemonic threat, although you could certainly argue that local crises could pop up that might uh, imperil the stability of Europe and allow conditions for hegemon to emerge. That hasn't happened. As we see in Ukraine today, Russia simply lacks the capability, separate from the will, it lacks the capability to dominate Europe like the former uh, Soviet Union attempted to. As a result, the United States has a realistic opportunity to go to the Europeans, go to the European partners, and explain in very you know, diplomatic fashion that the United States is focused upon a new nascent uh, competitor called China. It also has large domestic uh, burdens that it has to bear uh, at home. And as a result, it is time for the European members of NATO, individually or collectively, it's up to them to decide, to begin stepping up and taking much more of the burden uh, for providing hard capabilities for Europe's defense. This would be in the form of tanks, of aircraft, of uh, peacekeepers, as the case might be, for deployable air forces, so on and so forth. But the bottom line is that the Europeans, instead of turning to the United States as the first responder, a responsibility, a role that we've seen the United States play in crises throughout the post-Cold War era in Bosnia and beyond, as we see today, where it's American soldiers who are deployed to the front line uh, primarily of the Eastern European members, that role would be changed where it would be more Western European or European-wide forces deployed for those contingencies with the U.S. only stepping in if and as Europe proved truly unable to deal with the threat. And thankfully, again, the United States has an opportunity to push this agenda because the overriding American interest called preventing a European hegemon from emerging simply is not in the offing today. But the article says that uh, today the unipolar moment is over and the United States faces a rising Asian challenger, problems elsewhere, and discontent at home. So dealing yeah. with the latter, 
I find it extraordinary, Joshua, that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and these white nationalist reactionaries in the House Freedom Caucus are basically helping out China's foreign policy, even though they rail against China. I mean, here you have Biden having to cancel an important trip to Papua New Guinea, where he's going to meet with all of the Pacific Island nations, and China is is on an offensive, a charm offensive, along with bribing these uh, impoverished uh, island leaders. And this is a, an issue of, of soft power, where both the United States and Australia have been really slow in reacting, but now they finally decided to do something about it. And what happens? They gather all these people, along with the Quad in Australia, and then Biden has to cancel it because of the lunatic actions of these uh, radicals here in the House threatening to default on the U.S. economy. Well, so I, I agree with the soft power angle of it, but I would also add in some hard power issues. After all, we're in debt talks. You know, we're, we're facing the possibility of a debt default. If and when that happens, um, the uh, American economy is going to be called into question, the centrality, the reliability of the American uh, government as a lender of, of last resort is going to be called into question, meaning that the dollar, the role of the dollar is an international currency upon which American economic leverage, American sanctions all rest. These are long-term uh, competitive issues that are going to matter vis-a-vis China might well be called into question. Right? I don't think they will be. But it certainly raises questions over the American economic role in the world to say nothing of the sagacity and the diplomatic skill at the United States, uh, that the United States can deploy to muster alliances, to organize military coalitions, and so on. So if we are indeed serious about competing with China, then the, then the game of chicken that the United States government is currently engaged in, and when I say government, I don't just mean the Biden administration. I also agree with you about the Congress and the GOP's role in this whole matter. Uh, it, it runs directly at odds with the geopolitical landscape that the United States faces and what many of these policymakers themselves say they truly want to get on with in the world. But back to my question about anti-Americanism being used by Erdogan and perhaps being a subtext for why the Global South is not supporting NATO and the U.S. and not supporting Ukraine and are sitting on the fence or are supporting Russia. The article says that when Western European governments spoke out against the war in Iraq in 2003, they were ignored, even though they were right. So are we still suffering some residue from the Iraq war? Because after all, Russia invaded a sovereign nation, and we pretty much did the same thing in Iraq and uh, defied the UN in doing so. Well, uh, so I think the, I think the hypocrisy cost that you're getting at is, is there, and I alluded to this before. You know, whereas the United States see, saw itself in '03 as helping to liberate and oppress people, uh, and just as and conversely as we see today, where we portray we in the West portray the Russian invasion as immoral and uh, unjustified of Ukraine. I personally would agree with that assessment. I think for uh, third parties, much the rest of the world. The actions look very similar. Here's a strong country uh, picking up, picking on a weaker country, and so for the United States to then turn around and tell Russia, you know, this is abhorrent behavior, for people like Erdogan and, and his supporters, it's easy to say, well, what, what's the difference here? It's simply a matter of who's of, of different perspectives, but it's the same basic behavior. So I think the Iraq hangover and the broader hypocrisy baked into much of post Cold War American foreign policy is indeed driving some of the domestic politics in other countries here. 
So your article concludes with, far from signaling a retreat from international affairs, the United States will demonstrate that it is not an out-of-touch declining hegemon clinging to its prior preeminence, but instead a global leader seeking to work with capable partners to build a safe and resilient world. What are the right. chances of that? Uh, who's leading that charge? Well, obviously my co-authors and I. But I, I <laughs> who, who's listening to you? <laughs> right, who I, I sincerely hope are listening to this. Uh, no, I, I take the point. I, but, but I think that the people who... Uh, I, I do think that there are... Before, before the Russian invasion, we, we actually saw a commonality between the Biden administration, even the increasingly Trump administration, a call to make focusing upon China and U.S. domestic problems uh, the overriding priorities in, on the U.S. foreign agenda, where Europe was going to be relegated much to the backdrop. Obviously, the Trump and the Biden administration had very different approaches and very different definitions of what the domestic problems were. But the overarching foreign policies and grand strategic priorities were very similar. I think the war in Ukraine has somewhat empowered those who were opposed to this idea of drawing down in Europe and pivoting towards Asia and focusing remaining resources at home. And I think it's actually time to go back to what had been the cards, what had been on trend before the Russian invasion. I think we should avoid overreacting to the Russian invasion, pretending that the U.S. needs to play this critical role in Europe again at a time when, as I said a while ago, and as you as you referenced uh, from the article, Europe has more than enough capability to stand up on its own, where the Russian threat to Europe, thankfully, is moderate and containable and controllable. And so the U.S. has time and space to encourage the Europeans to step up more and figure out habits of cooperation, figure out moods and military behavior, where the post-World War II vision for Europe that the United States had for post-World War II of a continent able to stand on its own two feet again and play a critical role in the global balance of power, I hope that the time is right for that to be realized. Joshua Schiffenson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Schiffenson, who's a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs co-authored with Emma Ashford and Stephen Wertheim, Does America Need Europe? We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the belief among free market radicals that democracy and freedom are incompatible with capitalism and that countries like Singapore and Dubai are models to follow with free trade zones as capitalist nirvanas that will unleash the market from the tyranny of government and bureaucracy. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Quince Labodian, who is a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe. 
International History, Social Movements, and the Intellectual History of Neoliberalism, a frequent contributor to The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Dissent, The Nation, and The New Statesman. He's the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, and Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his latest book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Quinn Slobodian. It's good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Quinn. And obviously, uh, I want to talk to you about these capitalist uh, nirvanas, these Cinderella stories of these opportunity zones all around the world. But just to touch on the story of the moment, uh, which is the debt ceiling, which seems a repeat if it goes ahead and defaults, a repeat of the Brexit disaster, which is to this day has paralyzed the UK. How do you see that in terms of crackpot capitalism? Well, I think that, you know, mentioning Brexit is appropriate because one of the reasons I wrote the book was kind of a dissatisfaction with the way we've been talking about global politics since 2016. It feels like we had defaulted to this mode where we either had globalization, which was the good old days pre-2016, or we had a return to the nation and nationalism with Brexit and then Trump and the years since then. And it seems to me that actually capitalism before 2016 was much messier than that. And it's filled with all kinds of um, internally diverse ways of organizing economies and also a lot of crises and recurrent crises. So the debt ceiling, should it, you know, should we in fact default as a nation? I, my, suspe- my suspicion is that we won't and that in fact the, the Democrats will be bankrupted, you know, or uh, they will be blackmailed once again into kind of rolling back the expansion of their promises. But I think it could, you know, become another episode in this feeling that we're trapped in kind of the nation frame of political economy. Well, but the radicals actually would like to, I think, you know, whether they want to destroy the the American and global economy, apart from that, they want to destroy Biden and his legacy and create a recession and pave the way to bring back Trump. So that seems mm-hmm. to be their their agenda. And I don't know how you negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, I mean, I think that is true if you look at the kind of if you think about the main kind of politics and perhaps the only kind of politics in the United States as being that which is happening in Washington, D.C. at the kind of top level. But I think that more and more it's necessary to understand Republican strategy in terms of a return to the states as the site at which like life affecting and economy affecting policy happens. So I think that although I agree with you that there's obviously an attempt to cripple Biden and burden him with a big PR loss to bring back their candidate of choice in the next round of voting. I think another way of looking at it is if you starve the state at the top level and you um, tie its hands enough, then you make it necessary for a lot of politics to be happening more and more at the state level. And you start this kind of jurisdictional competition, the fight for the lowest taxes, the movement of people voting with their feet and their dollars from one state to the next. And that actually is kind of a setup more to the, the the imagination that I described in my most recent book. But as you point out, uh, the examples of these capitalist nirvanas, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Dubai, are based upon pretty f- phony data. Hong Kong, of course, 
flourished because it was a gateway to China and now China controls it and may shut it down. Uh, mm -hmm. People are leaving in droves and Singapore, they'd you know, basically invested in a lot of public housing, etc., for, mm -hmm. for the slave labor that they offer. And Dubai is floating on oil and gas. So is there any authentic example of this capitalist nirvana, this fantasy of Peter Thiel and Ray Dalio and others? Well, it really depends on how you look at it. I think that, you know, what to us can seem like the kind of poison pill of a Hong Kong model, for example, like the absence of democracy or its previous existence as a, as a colony or in the Emirates and places like Dubai, the fact that, you know, the well over 85% of the population are not citizens and therefore have no um, real claims on the state and are there sort of uh, at the at the mercy of the ruling elites. These things can seem like downsides for us and to many, but they aren't necessarily downsides to a lot of the people that I describe in my book. So I think that one way of looking at it is not sort of like looking at the ways that forms of authoritarian capitalism contain authoritarianism and are thus kind of disqualified from being legitimate forms of politics. The other way of looking at it is to say, how are those people who are looking for fixes for capitalism increasingly taking on board parts of the authoritarianism as being a necessary part of how business is done? And they kind of um, hire and fire and deport model of an absolutely liquid kind of reserve labor force that is the only way that a place like Singapore and Dubai exists becomes also something that is um, incorporated into a model of a perfect state. So I think, you know, the way that a place like uh, Miami in Florida is seeking to reformat itself as a kind of a low tax authoritarian uh, jurisdiction with high levels of economic freedom and low levels of civil freedom is a pretty good example of the attempt to bring home some of these offshore capitalist models. You're talking about Governor Ron DeSantis's dream? Yeah, yes. I mean, which is a, a lovely one to point to because in a way you have there the the perfect example of the special economic zone in the ceded quasi-extraterritorial space of Disney World, you know, having so many forces of kind of state-like authority in terms of taxation, policing, provision of utilities, which of course has become the showcase a punching bag for Ron DeSantis. And some people look at that and think that it shows that he himself is a different version of capitalism in mind. But I think as my father-in-law noted after he finished my book, it seems to me that seemed to him that Ron DeSantis actually just wants a zone of his own. So it's less an attempt to kind of make public again or kind of move towards a redistributive, more um, economically equal model, and rather just a fight over who gets to write the rules and the willingness to give that rule writing capability to the highest bidder seems to be uninterrupted, whether one looks at the Disney World itself or um, Ron DeSantis as his putative opponent. But surely these free economic zones, in a curious way, depend upon the rest of us, the rest of the world, and how the rest of the world mm -hmm. operates and how people pay taxes. So mm -hmm. if Peter Thiel and Ray Dalio's dream were to come true, then if the whole world was a free economic zone, who would pay taxes? 
Well, it depends what one sees the function of taxes to be, right? I mean, I think that you're absolutely right that one of the interesting things about looking at these zones is they're not blueprints for everybody, right? The idea is that there will be diversity of options, kind of bespoke places for investors who are interested in manufacturing or services or finance. So there's like taken on board a kind of heterogeneity or a diversity of the world regulatory environment. And the point is then people play arbitrage and move between those as it suits them. The point you're making, which I think is you know very valid, which is sort of like, you know, what happens to the rest of us and so to speak is the, the big point for them is you take the social contract of the mid-century, you know, which was pub, that of public education, that of a basic social safety net in many countries, that of kind of state-provided healthcare, those things which have become expectations um, for generation after generation are indeed things that you want to, as a market radical, you want to see paired back for everyone. So... Um, the question of who pays taxes becomes more of, you know, what is that tax money using to be paid for? The the idea of privatizing security or privatizing uh, roads, uh, uh, privatizing education, certainly. These things are um, welcome to the more radical end of the libertarian world that I describe. And as one of the chapters describes in the, the big move in the 1990s towards gated communities and these kind of common interest developments was really celebrated by a lot of libertarians in the kind of Cato Institute mold because they saw it as a kind of test run for a soft secession where people were able to build kind of private governments inside of existing states. And then you don't need a population beyond that to be particularly well-educated or um, well-provisioned. You just need a kind of labor force that can be drawn on um, when necessary. So your new book, Quinsilverdian, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, it argues that uh, what market radicals aspire to above all is to use the authority of government to serve their interests to eliminate taxes, unions, workers and citizens' rights, political uncertainty and barriers to capital flows and put the resources of the state, whether labour, land or the legal system, at their disposal. They believe that this approach will in turn result in a more prosperous society with benefits eventually accruing to all. So given that description when you talk about the legal system being captured, mm -hmm. that seems to be what's happened in the United States. It seems that th these laissez-faire capitalists like the Koch brothers and others mm -hmm. have realized they can't sell their terrible, selfish ideas to the legislative or the executive branch, and they can't, through elections, mm -hmm. capture the ex executive or the legislative branch. But they found a way to capture the judicial branch with ultra-conservative justices picked by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, funded by dark money, and who basically believe in laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. And they're starting to accrue enormous power to themselves and to mm -hmm. deregulate and to take power away from the government's ability to regulate air, water, drugs, the worker safety, you name it. Mm -hmm. So... That's, to me, where Cinderella capitalists, or whatever you want to call them, that's where they've made the greatest strides. 
with the Supreme mm-hmm. Court? No, absolutely. I agree. I think that if you also, if you see though that the goal of the the right-wing majority in the Supreme Court now to kind of reduce the areas of social life that the federal government has, you know, the ability to kind of intervene into or or legislate into in some ways. And then, of course, you know, allowing for intense legislation in other ways, specifically around uh, matters of reproductive rights. But you can see these two things working together, the two scales. So you can see, on the one hand, you seek to sort of constitutionalize things like, for example, a balanced budget amendment or constitutionalize um, a, a low tax rate, which is what they, in, in fact, did successfully in Hong Kong in the 1990s, remarkably, in the negotiations with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you got a constitutional debt break or a balanced budget amendment that many sort of Hoover Institution type scholars were excited about and said should be reimported back to the United States. But if you get that kind of uh, democracy in chains, as as Nancy McLean has described it, whereby the, the Supreme Court disempowers the Congress from making too many redistributive or expansionary moves, then what that produces is more experimentation and competition at the local, state, and city level, right? So I think you can see these two scales as working together, is you kind of handcuff the national state, and then you allow for more kind of diversity and mobility to emerge at the lower level. And the Republican Party has been playing a long game on that um, simply much better than the Democrats have by focusing on local races. Um, the political scientist Jake Grumbach, who maybe you've had on the show or you should, has written a recent book called um, about sort of flipping the idea of laboratories of democracy to show how the state level now is becoming the place where um, more and more of administrative competence is being uh, constrained and more is being pushed into private actors and into ultimately um, the ex- the magnification of the inequalities that already exist between different populations. But we're seeing, surely, Quintlebertian, a kind of dystopian version of states' rights uh, following the Dobbs decision uh, mm-hmm. banning abortion or throwing it back to the states. Mm-hmm. You know, you have in southern states, you, in effect, you know, you've got vigilantes, you've got bounties, you've got the idea mm-hmm. that young women going to a bus Greyhound bus station to have to travel hundreds of miles to get an abortion it could be stopped by these Christian vigilantes to show me your mm-hmm. papers. I mean, it's really turning into something quite ugly. And Absolutely. I just don't see how how that could be Peter Thiel and Ray Dalio's dream. I mean, I noticed, for example, the Wall Street guy that's destroying CNN and uh, Warner Brothers by firing so many people He's at the commencement. His he gave the commencement address at Boston University, and the students all howled back at him. You know, pay the writers, pay the writers. So <laughs> that leads me to ask you about what kind of pushback there can be. You know, mm-hmm. the younger generation that were howling at uh, David Zaslav, they've got student debt. The idea of, you said earlier about how we used to have free education. Well, now you're indentioning kids before they even get a job. So Mm -hmm. something is really wrong with that system. So Mm -hmm. where do you see the pushback coming to pull over people like 
Peter Thiel has already bought two. Well, he bought. He bought. Tried to buy two senators. He got one in, and he. Mm-hmm. I think he got one congressman in as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first on the states' right point, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if you think about one of the crucibles of this of this debate in American history, it's over slavery, and with precisely the similar effects of kind of people crossing borders, slave catchers, attempts to, to capture enslaved people who had liberated themselves. Um, so there's a we have a track record of of the violence of crack up and fragmentation in this country. Um, the interesting thing about the people that I write about in my book is they know that history and they they're actually fine with it and they welcome it. Uh, Murray Rothbard has this line about repealing the 20th century and breaking the clock of social democracy. So getting rid of the expectation that we will all be able to eventually, you know, move towards a common prosperity together is is part of the essential kind of ideology here. It's a it's a deliberate breaking and reneging on all those promises of modernization. And how one then counters that, I mean, whew, there's, I think, two ways of looking at it. One is just old-fashioned callback to statism. So I think I, like many other people on the left, have been pretty pleasantly surprised by the uh, the energy with which the Biden administration has tried to put um, federal momentum behind things like um provisioning for a care economy, restoring some kind of jobs with dignity in this country, preparing for just energy transition in so far as possible. Um, they ran into the wall of the midterms, obviously. They're now running into the wall of, of the Republican control of Congress. But the vision is still there. I think of old-fashioned, you can still put faith in, I think, old-fashioned democracy to some extent. Um, you can push new you can push new language out there. No one expected Biden to pick up a lot of Bernie Sanders' language, but here we are, partially because of um, some of his staffers having more radical politics maybe than he does and whispering in his ear. And I think that kind of politics is perfectly defensible and you know, probably the path of least resistance, even though there's a lot of resistance there. But then there's also, uh, there is some kind of mirror image of the crack up capitalism that I describe in the book, which would be to focus heavily on kind of local experiments with alternative kinds of, of, of politics, whether it's, you know, cooperatives or um, what they have in, in Britain, the Preston model of kind of community land trusts or the, you know, the Mondragon model that people know from Basque region in Spain. There are kinds of ways of doing a positive version of local politics and, you know, crack up commons, as some people have jokingly called it after having read my book. So I think that as the Republican and the and the right look at these two scales simultaneously, national level electoral politics and kind of local and state level um, uh, radical experimentation, I think that, you know, a response needs to similarly stay focused on those two possible scales of intervention and defense. Well, I'm I'm waiting for the perfect West Coast ecotopia to to be the <laughs> That's right. Cascadia the, is just around the corner. Right. I thank you for joining us, Sir Quinslow William. It was a pleasure. 
And again, I've been speaking with Quince Labodian, who's a professor of history at Wellesley College, where he teaches histories of modern Europe, international history, social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism, a frequent contributor to The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Dissent, The Nation, and The New Statesman. He's the author of Foreign Front, Third World Politics in 60s West Germany, and Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And his latest book is Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice said it something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here of the free One time, one night One more light goes out in a